0: Welcome to episode three of Death to America. I'm your host, Death, and today I'll be going over a topic that has drawn my attention for several years, and which perfectly illustrates the incompetence, callousness, and dare I say evil of the American state, the Syrian civil war. Since its start in 2011, between 500 and 600,000 people have died, and more than 12 million have been displaced, roughly half internally and half leaving the country. The war, in its kaleidoscopic complexity, has seen the intervention of numerous regional and global powers, including Turkey, Iran, Russia, Israel, and most importantly, the United States. The United States' involvement in Syria has evolved as the war has gone on, and today is mostly focused on the denial of resources and territory from the Syrian government in Damascus. This animus towards the Syrian state has gone as far as siding with ISIS and threatening to airstrike the Syrian army when it was on track to advance quickly against ISIS forces during an offensive in 2017. Had it moved apace, the Syrian army would have likely captured valuable oil fields in eastern Syria, but instead they eventually came under the control of U.S.-backed Kurdish militias and have come to be exploited by U.S. companies for profit. As the war has moved towards a stalemate, and the prospect of the overthrow of the Assad government has become a near impossibility, the United States continues to occupy a section of southwestern Syria around the border with Iraq, known as Al-Tanf. Initially seized by ISIS before being taken back by, with U.S.-supplied Iraqi soldiers, Al-Tanf has acted as a staging ground for U.S. operations within the borders of Syria. The Syrian government's efforts to reclaim the rightful territory have been met with U.S. airstrikes. To be clear, the United States has seized a portion of a sovereign country and has deployed its air force to prevent the government of that country from retaking its own land. The U.S. has, in its usual fashion of plainly lying, labeled the area of control a, quote, deconfliction zone. As the U.S. will not tolerate any action against its illegal interests in this arid swath of land, one can recall Calgus's quote about the Romans, they make a desert and call it peace. The U.S. itself admits that the goals of the Altown base have evolved from just fighting ISIS, the justification of all U.S. involvement in Syria, to, quote, disrupting Iranian-aligned activities across the land bridge from Iran to Lebanon, and, quote, creating leverage in negotiations regarding the future of Syria. Of course, we know that these were always goals, as the Israel-aligned forces in the U.S. government have made it their primary goal in the Syrian theater to minimize Iranian influence. To their doubtless angst, though, the more damage done to the Syrian state, either from U.S. involvement or Israeli airstrikes, the more Syria relies upon Iranian aid, to the point that now Iranian volunteers operating in Syria have begun to settle in the country in large numbers at the conclusion of their combat duties. Returning to the northeast part of Syria, the even more egregious theater of U.S. activity, the aforementioned oil wells are not the only target of U.S. extraction. There are also numerous reports of U.S. forces guarding shipments of grain leaving Syria. While Syria's food situation is not as bad as that in Yemen, another victim of U.S. abuse, it certainly does not benefit from the theft of food in the midst of of a global crisis. The stolen resources doubtlessly find their way onto global markets, with the proceeds probably being used on some level to offset the cost of operations in Syria and Iraq, but also used for whatever covert operations are running in the region. This is a pattern seen throughout history, both in the U.S. and globally. In terms of oil theft, under the Trump administration, a private company, Delta Crescent Energy, was given a contract to oversee extraction and sale of Syrian oil. While this contract was not renewed under the Biden administration, the oil extraction has continued, leaving one to conclude that whatever backroom deal the Trump government had reached with Delta Crescent executives did not suit the new administration, who preferred to take a direct hand in the racket. The theft is so blatant that I had trouble even finding articles that claimed the U.S. wasn't stealing oil. The closest I got was a Voice of America author who claimed the oil revenue was being used to benefit the people of the Kurdish regions from which the oil was extracted. This claim came only from a Delta Crescent PR executive and is otherwise unsupported. Voice of America, for those unaware, is an unabashed U.S. propaganda outlet. The dearth of quality in regime propaganda further underlines the inexcusable nature of the theft of Syrian resources. Normally, a few well-paid talking heads can be found who will defend everything from a drone strike on an orphanage to child torture, as long as it has the U.S. government stamp of approval on it. But in this case, the course of action for the regime seems to be to talk as little about the matter as possible. This concludes today's brief, scripted portion of today's episode. Thank you. Hello, this is the unscripted commentary portion of today's episode. I know the scripted portion was a little bit uh, shorter than usual. The other two episodes, I think, probably were 15 to 25 minutes of, of scripted commentary. Uh, there's a lot of information there. I will say for the previous two episodes, I had to do a fair bit more research. I knew a lot about, uh, particularly Scientology, um, but I, I didn't really have like the dates and the order of things uh, down necessarily, so I had to do quite a bit of research on that. Uh, For Syria, my knowledge is, you know, know, not to sound too know-it-all-y, but I think I know probably more about the Syrian civil war than I do almost any other political topic. Um, And I found myself writing just a very, very long essay, probably verging into like a, a you know a pamphlet or you know not a pamphlet but a a small book almost worth of information or I was on track to do that because I was not making a a steady amount of progress and I was just like I either have to cut this back substantially or I'm going to be making a podcast just about the Syrian Civil War. Um, So if the commentary or if the uh, the script portion feels a little bit um, a little bit brief. I guess that's probably why is I wanted to mainly focus on the, the topic of, of resource theft as opposed to kind of the wider conflict. But of course, you got to give some background on the conflict. Um, so I, you know, the United States has a, a fairly storied history of getting into resource wars basically uh a lot of people say like oh iraq was the invasion of iraq was a resource war we invaded afghanistan for the for the opium and those are not unrelated factors i wouldn't say that they're the primary factors uh for those conflicts um but uh, you know closer to home as well too you know the united states intervention and various interventions in uh south and central america uh sort of famously the uh the united fruit company the fact the united states went to war with bananas is 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 kind of a funny anecdote people will tell from history but it's also sort of horrifying when you think about uh the things that go into occupying a country Uh, that that wasn't usually the u.s's first go-to option uh but of course we did occupy america did occupy various countries particularly in the caribbean the dominican republic and i think the the 30s and you know in the course of those occupations a lot of resources were were either Flat out expropriated and taken or uh owned and sold and you know bought at very low rates uh through various aligned or just u s companies um, so this is not a this is not a new pattern and it's not a pattern unique to the United States, but it is i will say in Syria it verges almost on the comical i mean you don't often see Nowadays, outside of like bush wars or you know places where like you know you've got a militia that's just like you know 50 guys with guns and they go into a village and they take what they want and leave, Uh, you don't see you know full-blown national militaries with a with a well-established hierarchy and command and you know basically an HR department. You wouldn't really expect uh, a military like that to be engaged in just blatant theft like this but it is um and it's not just the military it's the whole government apparatus but it just it really does to death the lie that uh america is in some way like this unique moral power that our involvement in these regions is in some way uh uplifting them you know in some kind of uh moralistic or uh spiritual way it's like no that's a bunch of bs frankly uh we're just there for a number of reasons but i think the theft, in particular, is sort of a sideshow. Uh, obviously, thats it's like a particularly gratuitous thing on top of all the bombings and the murder and the strategic incompetence and all of that. Uh, it's just like a, an extra F.U. to the people uh, and to the nation of Syria. Um, and I, I mean, you can't really talk about that without talking about, okay, well, why are we in Syria at all? And I talked about the Al-Tamf base, which, by the way, is not in... Uh, southwestern syria it's in southeastern syria southwestern syria also has a a large number uh, or did at least have a large number of foreign supported terrorist groups operating against the government those to a large degree been stamped out now uh, or stamped out or negotiated with the government to give up um there was a big effort by the syrian government with russian negotiations to convince a lot of rebels that were operating in this pocket um of the city i think it was Daraa or something like that um to leave this cut-off city where they lived to take a bus, uh, to Northern Syria, uh, which is like this part that, uh, Turkey basically occupies. I mean, they use like Arab soldiers to, you know, sort of put a, a facade on it, but this is really just a, a Turkish zone of control for the most part. So they, you know, put them on buses, drove through, you know, regime occupied territory, and then, you know, dumped them off in this, uh, this different enclave where they could not be you know basically living under siege because they at some point the syrian government was going to win uh, and that was pretty much writing on the wall the israelis while known for uh, sponsoring various islamic groups and even giving like material aid to isis in certain situations was not gonna bail them out so they made a de- they cut a deal and 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 left um but you know speaking of i guess isis uh, specifically uh, as i said previously the united states threatened to drop you know do airstrikes on the syrian army when it was fighting isis and the specific circumstances of this was i believe it was uh, the syrian army was on track to cross the i think it's the euphrates river and get further into eastern syria which i think is like the der province um you know they, they were very much winning against isis in a way that uh I think prior to that they hadn't. They had a big breakthrough, and the Syrian army was itching to get, obviously, to you know the the resources, but to continue their uh, their advance. Uh, which obviously, in a kind of a stalemate-prone conflict like this, is a is a good feeling, and you know the command wants to capitalize upon that. And the United States Air Force I, I, Joint Command, whatever whatever entity they've spun up to like you know put a bureaucratic name on their operations there. Um, said, yeah, if the Syrian army tries to cross the Euphrates River, we will bomb you. If they try to attack ISIS across the Euphrates River, we will, uh, you know, fucking kill you. Really what it came down to. And, I, you know, I I have to imagine, like, the Syrian army was, like, sort of scratching their heads, like, God, aren't, aren't we all trying to kill ISIS? But I also got to remember the Syrians have been fighting U.S., either literal u.s forces or u.s back forces they're probably just like you know this is par for the course um and that you know i think it delayed them like a week or two that they just they i think they did eventually cross the Fraser river in some spots but it took the wind from uh from their sails basically in in their effort and what ended up happening is obviously for several weeks the isis forces continued to uh you know to govern if you can call it that, the Eastern Bank, the Euphrates River, but eventually US-backed SDF, Syrian Defense Forces, which is just Kurdish militias, uh, rolled in and took over the oil fields and and most of the valuable real estate. And that's really, I think, what that that particular episode was about. Um, It it wasn't like a, a grand strategic thing. It was, oh, there's stuff here that we want, and we don't want you to take it. And, you know, you can say what you will like oh well, that's good strategic thinking or something like that but the whole basis of u.s involvement in syria and you know going back farther before isis was like we're going to go and beat the terrorists these islamic radicals and here you find yourself being like hey don't kill those <laughs> islamic radicals uh it it doesn't look good and it just you know it just if it wasn't said already if they hadn't already said that they had other goals beyond killing isis it just makes the point that that is the case um because if your only goal is to kill isis who cares if it's the syrian army or the or the kurdish doing it um and you know they've, they've sort of been forced now to admit that well what was already the case is that their operations in syria are not really about isis anymore I and mean, that that's still listed every time you see them talking about syria it's like oh we're we're fighting isis isis ceased to exist as a as a relevant force sometime in like 2017 2018 mostly thanks to the syrians and like russian uh russian airstrikes and to a a small degree four who would take isis propaganda videos and find the streets that they were filmed on uh using like google satellite information and then send them to syrian uh artillery officers (laughs) then uh strike those targets um ISIS has not really been relevant since then. They still do, up to up to today, do bombings and and suicide attacks and and stuff like that. But I mean, them as a as a force that needs like the U.S. military to fight them, insofar as they ever, you know, insofar as the U.S. ever needed to be involved, um, is long gone. Uh, so all U.S. presence there has a has quote unquote an ulterior, ulterior motive, and as they say, the the number one goal I. I don't think they care at all about the future of Syria. Syria could explode or shoot off into space tomorrow and, you know, uh, Washington would be like, okay, cool. Uh, The only thing they seem to care about is preventing the Iranians from getting influence in the region. And, you know, as I said, it's sort of funny is the Iranians only grow in influence as the more chaotic things get because as things grow more chaotic governments and people in power in the, that region turn to whoever is willing to help them you know govern in spite of that and frankly that's the iranians i mean there's really no other power in the region except turkey sort of who's willing to you know so to speak put boots on the ground put money where their mouths are and say we are not interested in uh, in chaos we actually want stable governments because we want to have relationships uh, ideally with with these governments and the united states despite what they claim has no interest in seeing a, a strong and stable syrian state because that's not what israel wants israel you know sometimes they said it publicly sometimes they don't is interested in a broken up, pretty much as it is, Syria. A Syria that is incapable of even thinking about doing anything outside of its borders. Syria can't even control its own borders, uh, so you know they can't very well look at you know questioning the Israelis illegally occupying the Gallant Heights. So as you know, as long as the U.S. has like the Al Tanf military base, you know, uh, 30 kilometers inside of Syrian territory with a 55-kilometer quote deconfliction zone uh really the deconfliction is is between Israel and Syria as long as the US has that deconfliction zone there will be no Syrian attempts to do anything to Israel because you know the US is there and you could say well isn't this a a good thing, right? Because if they're not fighting, if Syria isn't trying to get anything from Israel, you know, that's that's peace, right? Well, it's not really peace, because Israel will not take that and say, okay, well, we have our ball, we're going to go home now. They continue to bomb the Syrian uh, government, pretty much at every opportunity that they're given. Um, The only reason they don't or haven't in certain cases is because the Syrians have you know, relatively decent and hopefully improving, uh, air defense capability, which is mostly bought from the Russians. Now the Russians don't have the greatest equipment, it's not the newest equipment they're being sold, but there is a risk every time Israel runs a, a you know, a, an attack sortie that they're going to lose a fucking plane. Um... So, but they, you know, they, they still do it anyways. Occasionally, I think they either have a, a plane get damaged, or I don't think one's been shot down in a while, but they've kind of had to scale that back, not because they don't want to bomb Syria, but because they, they kind of can't. And the Iranians now, uh, you know, ironically, they, they're stepping in as well, in addition to the Russians, with their own resources for the Assad government. So the real instigator here in, in violence is not, like, the Syrian government. Whatever you can say about, oh, Assad's a bad guy, blah, 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 like, there is not any appetite in damascus for you know further escalation of the conflict i think they given the option would probably just sign a ceasefire a complete ceasefire tomorrow because they've defeated their primary existential threat to them which is which was isis on some level um and you know they would just i think like the u.s to leave so they can you know not be bombed anymore but you know america's got again, money to make and israelis to please so they're not going to go anywhere and you know i i hear this sometimes this is a very rare thing nowadays it used to be more common which is like we need to support the the democratic forces in syria there's no democratic forces left there's like turkish-backed rebels or mostly they're just i think mercenaries who say that they are for democracy but they just get their paycheck from the turkish government and that's it there's the kurds who are pretty much in some cases out for themselves, but at this point are pretty much just U.S. puppets. Um, I mean, you know, for goodness sake, they're helping export resources that, you know, you could say maybe belong to them. They're in, quote-unquote, their territory. Uh, But, you know, it's not for their people. All the money is not going to them, unless you listen to Delta Crescent, a private oil company. Uh, The money is going to either, you know, U.S. private companies or to the, you know, the black hole that is the u.s military budget there's nothing going back to the kurdish people um so i I guess i've really just kind of been ranting here for a little bit um but you know I, i think it's this is a particular gratuitous example the other one i'd like to cover at some point is uh the u.s involvement in the yemeni conflict um that conflict is i think similar in age to the syrian conflict it's a little bit newer i think the saudi's invaded in like 2014 or something like that um but it's it's honestly more sad than anything i mean all all these conflicts are sad and the united states has played a role in that sadness but i mean the yemenis have like a a humanitarian crisis that just uh it it is not good and i don't particularly relish the idea of talking about it um But yeah, so I guess the conclusion to take away from this probably pretty brief episode um, is the United States is stealing resources when it doesn't have to. Our involvement in this conflict has resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of more people than would have died if this was just a regular, you know, even just a regional conflict. And, um, you know, there's no one really talking about leaving uh, the Biden administration for all of its you know relatively common liberal democratic oh peace and niceness has not indicated any plan to leave the Al Tanf base the military has not indicated any path to leave the Al Tanf base and even if they do they hold they hold like a whole fifth of syria through their proxies in in the sdf so you know i guess <laughs> i'm not gonna say call your congressman because the u.s government's not worth uh, the paper it's printed on um in terms of democracy uh <laughs> as the midterm elections, which I'll talk about in just a second, or indicate, but, you know, it's just just something to know about, I guess. Um, So, moving on a little bit, I want to talk briefly about something I'm not going to make an episode about, which is uh, the midterm elections. I don't know if anybody who listens votes. Uh, If you do, that's lame, you shouldn't vote. Uh, I am not registered to vote. I have not re- voted in a long time. And if you vote, you're a loser, and you're participating in a system which does not care what you think and only wants you to vote so that it can have a number it can check off and say, "Look at how many people voted." Because I can tell you this: the, the midterm elections are, you know, somebody likes numbers and such, they're somewhat interesting and like, oh, you know, who voted? Where did they vote? Blah blah blah. But you know, the result, which seems to be fairly negative for the Republicans, despite flipping the uh, the House. It's not going to change anything. I mean, some people like sort of want the government to be paralyzed by like this, uh, you know, we're going to split the government between the parties, therefore nothing will get done, therefore that's good. I can see that argument. I would say that on an issue like foreign policy, like Syria, if the Republicans had taken a massive majority in both houses and, you know, let's say, you know, Joe Biden were to have a heart attack and Kamala Harris were to, you know, get in a car accident and die and then whoever would be the Republican uh, Speaker of the House, I think, would... That's the, that's the uh, uh what you call it the the succession right it would be the speaker of the house um that or senate pro tem i forget but either way it would probably be a republican right uh nothing would change in syria the al face would not close uh aid to the uh the kurds uh, as a means of like you know, cutting off the Iranians from the Lebanese and securing resources would not end. Uh, There's nothing in either party's platform, which of course is just, you know, what they say they're going to do. It's not what they're actually going to do. Uh, There's nothing in the party's platform, nor in, you know, the actions that they do take, or in the mindset of people who staff the various government departments, which is as critical as anything else. Actually, I would say it's probably the most important thing, is who are the Actually exercising power, Um, nothing in there indicates that they are interested in leaving the region and stopping the United States' participation in ungodly uh, humanitarian uh, crimes. Um, I mean, I think Obama, when he was running in 2008, kind of made noises about like, oh, we're gonna gonna pull out of Iraq. I mean, I was a little bit young, but you know, I'm sure people will remember. There was some noise about. Ending the Iraq War. Then we had the surge. <laughs> nothing is nothing is going to change uh, in Syria unless the Iranians and the Russians and the Syrians decide to evict the United States by force out of all towns. Which, I mean, you know, I, I don't want people to die or anything like that. That'd be terrible. I'm sure it'd be very bloody for both sides. But I would say it would be kind of amusing to have to see the regime of the United States try to justify. Yes, we are i mean they have to go to war over this we are going to war because our base that we took using foreign mercenaries in a sovereign country is under attack by the forces of that sovereign country and now you need to go sign up at your military recruitment center so you can go fight some guy who (laughs) you know nothing about who lives in a country you know nothing about in a conflict you know nothing about uh good luck oh and if you get injured uh fuck you on top of all of it um i think that that i mean if this was a sane country or or you know uh, anywhere even approaching a, a just regime that would be like a big topic in an election right of course if this was a just regime we never would have entered syria would really be involved in the middle east at all but that aside if tomorrow the government became like you know decent uh or you know that was a topic in the election it'd be talked about of like you know what what are we doing in this you know uh, a corner of a country literally on the other side of the planet, uh, that, you know, I think if you ask most people, like, wh- like where does Al-Tamf sound like it is, I think maybe some of them could pick out, like, that's eh, it's probably somewhere in the Middle East, um, even fewer of them could probably pick out Syria on a, on a map, and even fewer could probably pick out where Al-Tamf is within Syria. I myself, you know, said it was in the, uh, the Southwest, it was actually in the Southeast. So, you know as as midterm things as as politics go, there is no hope for solving an issue like this through that. Um, I know a lot of people get agitated when when it seems like the government's gonna change, right? It's like that's what the election is sort of conceptually supposed to be about, right? Like we're gonna get new people in there and they're gonna do new things. And the reality is, I mean despite being a relatively young person, I can see the United States has never really done anything differently. Uh, They've put different wallpapers on their, you know, shoddy hotel, so to speak, but there is, it's it's always the same, Um, you know, and I think the best, one of the better articulations of that is the continued narrative of, we are fighting Islamic extremists. It's Al-Qaeda, it's the Taliban, it's ISIS, whoever it is, that is always the basis of these interventions. Um, And when I say wallpaper, I mean literally, like, obviously the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, different groups, you know, some crossover there, but in the U.S. mindset, I think for the average person and for how it is marketed as propaganda by the United States, it is literally just a difference of letters, like they're not really concerned and no one really is interested in what are the actual differences here, what's the nuance here, what are we actually doing when we, you know, put this new bad guy out there that we got to go attack, um, it's just, it's just painting over. It's like, okay, guys, get rid of the, you know, screw Taliban things. We got a, we got a new enemy. It's called ISIS or, or Daesh, or whatever. You know, nonsense. I and mean, that in and of itself is kind of a, a, uh, a psychological operation. It's like we're not going to call it ISIS anymore. We're going to call it Daesh, which means something in Arabic, right? Uh, because that, that's, that's what they don't like. We're not going to call the terrorists what they, what they don't like. Um, to be honest with you, I think that. Is, may just be another example of it people knew uh isis they knew the name isis whereas if you switch the name they don't know anything about isis they don't know anything about daesh they just see oh new enemy get excited <laughs> we've killed the old enemy get excited for new enemy um and the enemy of course is perpetual because uh, the united states has never really well managed any of its interventions in these countries um, not of course that these interventions are meant to be well-managed. Of course, the best uh, managed foreign adventure is one that you never actually undertake. But it, uh, for, to use Iraq as an example, much of ISIS's support within Iraq came from Sunnis uh, Sunni Muslims who were uh, dissatisfied with the United States's uh, you know, means that they undertook in the occupation after the Iraq war. So initially, the United States kind of leaned into this uh, I forget what it was, there was sort of those mealy mouth, like, oh, we're going to be egalitarian, and, you know, maybe the Kurds can have their own thing, and they can have this big swath of northern Iraq, and, you know, we need to be nice to everybody, so on and so forth. And that pretty much just didn't work. Um, The United States was losing the Iraq occupation up until the surge, pretty much. And then they sort of went in the other direction of, well, we're going to actually align with the Shias, who are at least a plurality of the country, if you consider the Kurds as their own group um religiously, I think there might even be a, an absolute majority in the country. Um, so that's who we're going to align with. And all these Sunnis who previously under the Saddam government had been, you know, in pretty good middle class jobs or even in the, the upper echelons of society found themselves sort of, you know... Politely, you know, shown the door, so to speak, and well, now there's some guys from something they call the Caliphate, and they're here with guns, and uh, they would like you to join their army. And you know, a lot of people who were economically disenfranchised said, "Sure, why not?" And then the United States has created its own enemy to then. Uh, fight against and to get into a country Syria which it had previously wanted to target as uh, mentioned in the the clean break doctrine uh, prior to the Iraq war but had never gotten around to attacking because of course Iraq and Afghanistan went so badly they couldn't very well easily justify another invasion um so that's I realize I've just been ranting about different things here for a few minutes um I think that's pretty much all I've got on today's episode. I think the next episode I'd like to do. Uh, I'm not doing pretty much any election coverage. I don't care. Um, you know, that's actually kind of one of the reasons it took me so long to put out another episode. Cause I was like, if I make another episode in the election period time, I'm going to want to talk about it because I do follow electoral politics while I advocate not participating in them. And I'm going to want to talk about that. And I even did a little bit today. Um, But I think the next episode I'm going to try to do would be maybe something on Yemen or maybe coming back to the United States. I'd like to talk a little bit, go back into like the 50s, 60s and 70s, talk about um, either CIA domestic operations, which in theory should be an oxymoron. The CIA is not supposed to have domestic operations Um, or, you know, uh, something in South America with, uh, you know, sort of the foreign interventions closer to home. I haven't decided yet. Either of those things is going to require quite a bit of research, so I can't really say when I'm going to have another episode out, but I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode. Um, Thank you very much.